up late night. Not that I watch the 10 o'clock news. There's nothing on it to watch. I don't. Most of the time, maybe once in a great while, I'll catch part of it, but it doesn't mean much to me. I do have another thing here I want to mention in the announcements. Uh, just so that we kind of are keeping watch with what is going on, this summarizes fairly well, I think, um, where it appears things are going in terms of the financial situation in America. Did I turn this on when I put it on? Okay. I guess you already had it on. Speaking of the microphone. <clears throat> this is entitled the Global Europe Anticipation Bulletin. And it's from uh, LEAP 2020, which I think is headquartered in France, but is European in style. But I've been watching some of their articles over a period of several years, and they have pretty much right on schedule anticipated all of the events that would lead to uh, what they say is coming in April of this year. And that is pretty much a collapse of the American economy. Now, we know from the book of Zephaniah and many other scriptures that there is going to come an economic collapse in this country. That is quite clear in scripture. <clears throat> However, I don't know exactly when. Uh, and we can anticipate and speculate, perhaps, but we don't really know. So this is not my speculation, or even when I necessarily think it will happen. It very well could. But this is from LEAP, or Europe, 2020. Now, I'm not going to read the whole article, but they recount the, they call this the impact phase. And I did read an article from them some time back when they said the impact phase was starting to hit and the real heavy impact was yet to come. Now they're predicting that this will happen in April of this year. Uh, they quote that in, the, in 2006, U.S. foreclosures on houses increased by 42%, directly affecting an average of one U.S. household out of 92, and then in Colorado, California, Ohio, or Texas, one in 35 or 40. And they expect this to accelerate very rapidly uh, come April. They say, in April 2007, nine practical consequences of the unfolding crisis will converge. I'll read these to you. Uh, one, the acceleration of the pace and size of bankruptcies among U.S. financial organizations from one, week, from one per week today to one per day in April. That's financial organizations, not, not houses, but banks and those who have to do with the money industry. Verse 2, was, uh, verse two I'm not reading the Bible. Number 2, spectacular rise of U.S. home foreclosures. Ten million Americans out on the street. Now, bear in mind that in all these projections, and if you go to those websites which talk about the only way you're going to save money and survive the, in, the crisis that is coming in America, and they all recognize there's a crisis coming, is to buy gold and silver. And they think that if you have enough gold and silver, when the dollar goes to its true value, which is zero, uh, that you'll come through this wealthy on the other side. 
And what virtually all of them fail to take into consideration is that we're not coming out the other side. Uh, gold and silver might help you for a little while as the doctor, as the dollar devalues, but it is not a permanent hedge against the collapse that's coming. We know that Zephaniah says they'll throw the gold and the silver in the streets, and I don't think that's just symbolic of dollar bills, but probably gold and silver itself. Actually, when it comes to that point, a dollar bill might be a little more digestible and have more food value than gold. Hard to chew. Gold. So, uh, they think that that will be your salvation. They don't know that this country is going completely down and going into captivity as the scriptures tell us. So it might be a hedge for a while, but not ultimately. Three, accelerating collapse of housing prices in the U.S. 25% drop. Your house is worth 200000 They figure it will be worth 150. Uh, entry into recession of the U.S. economy in April 2007. A precipitous rate cut by the U.S. Federal Reserve to try to keep it going. See, they've been raising interest rates. Now they've stopped. Now it says they're going to go the other way. Now, what does that do? It makes buying American dollars and financial instruments less appealing to foreigners. And we require now about two and a half billion a day in people infusing money into the American economy so we can even pay the interest on our debts. And that will slow that down. They'll figure they can make more for their money elsewhere. Uh, growing importance of China-USA trade conflicts. That this will begin to come to a head. China's shift out of U.S. dollars, they have about a trillion. And if they start selling those off, our dollar continues its fall and probably will ultimately collapse. And along with that, again, carry trade reversal. What's the carry trade? <clears throat> it's essentially this. You can borrow money from Japan at zero interest. They will loan you money at zero interest. So people go to Japan, they borrow money from Japan, and then they buy U.S. Treasury bonds because they can get a pretty good percentage of increase on that, 5, 6, 7, 8%, depending on the instrument and the time. So they figure they can make money out of nothing, basically, by, by taking the, US, the uh, yen, buying it, and then investing in U.S. dollars. Now, as our interest rate goes down, it makes it less valuable for them to do that. Instead, they decide maybe they'll want to buy euros. That's the next thing. Sudden drop of the U.S. dollar value against the euro, yuan, and yen. And then a tumble of the sterling pound. That's the British dollar, basically. So they're expecting the U.S., and Britain to have a financial collapse is basically the bottom line of what they're saying, that these impacts are going to begin to hit in a very serious manner this spring by April. And they're, of course, continuing from there. They don't carry it on out. You know, if this happens and this happens and this happens like they say, then what will that also do? But they expect a total collapse eventually is what 
they're basically saying. Now, I think you need to tie that together with uh, the projections now that we apparently are going to go into our land somewhere between now and the end of April. Those are the projections by some military generals, by analysts from overseas, and even analysts from within America that that's what the U.S. government is planning. So some of these things may coincide. And if we're correct in our analysis of Daniel 8, it appears that the United States will fall militarily, and it shows a military and economic crash in Revelation 18, looks like the same time. So we may go into recession and depression, and then the first thing you know, a total collapse. And it could have to do then with an attack on America by a coalition of nations shortly thereafter or in concert with. I don't know exactly how it will play out. But I wanted to bring to your attention that there are those in the world who think it's going to be sooner than later. That's their projection, not mine. But I think you should be aware of it, be thinking about it, and be preparing for it spiritually and for that matter, physically, too, to whatever degree that might be possible. That also means that I think there will be, if this timing is right, I think that there will be some major changes in the church as well, and in some of the things that God promises to those who will be faithful. We might get into that some a little later, even yet today, I don't know. But it would seem that all these prophecies, as they begin to coalesce and happen, uh, would all tie together. The fall of the U.S., the rise of the church, and so on, should happen very in very close order, I would think. So, for what that's worth, I wanted to bring it to your attention, because this thing could come down very shortly. I'm not making a prediction there for a prophecy by any means, just reading to you what those people think. <clears throat> now let's go to the book of Ezekiel. Last week, or last time I spoke actually, two weeks ago, we went through Ezekiel 16, which typifies Israel as a great whore that is whored away from God, and I think that the application certainly is both to physical Israel and to the church here at the end which is supposed to be the bride of Christ, but that is seeking after the world and having alliances and uh, connections with the world that we should not have or be having or have had. And that God is blowing us apart and stripping us naked as a result and showing everything we have to the world and the world isn't too impressed with what's left of the church. With that in mind, God does say that he is going at the end of the chapter to reestablish a covenant, a new covenant, and it will be his covenant, not ours. And again, to show that he is God. That's the important part of this. That you may remember, verse 63, and be confounded and never open your mouth anymore because of your shame when I am pacified toward you for all that you have done, says the eternal God. So he's going to come through at the end for the church and ultimately in the millennium for the nation. And he has offered us the new covenant now. He will offer it to 
physical Israel and the rest of the world, to everyone at the beginning of the millennium, but to a very few whom he is specifically and individually called, brought, given this information, he's offered it to us. There are a lot of Protestant organizations that think they're living under the New Covenant, but they are not. A, they don't understand it. They don't even know what it has to do with. Maybe in general terms, but they've not been offered it. Their doctrine does not reflect it. It has only been offered to those who worship in spirit and in truth. And God only gives his spirit to those that obey. He's made that very, very clear. He doesn't give his spirit to people who do not obey his laws, his statutes, his commandments, every word of God. He just doesn't do it. And none of those organizations that I'm speaking of obey. They don't believe in obedience. They didn't believe in basically belief only. So they do not understand the new covenant whatsoever. We do. God has offered it to us. Now, Ezekiel 17 changes, but I wanted to tie in the context of chapter 16. We represent the bride of Christ, or a part of it at least, of the 144,000 who will become the bride of Christ, going back to a few from the Old Testament, the early New Testament church, and then the number rounded out here at the end. Those who have that new marriage covenant, and it is limited to 144,000. Because the new covenant, in terms of us, is a marriage covenant. It will be a new agreement with the world later on, but it will not be a marriage covenant, a marriage agreement. That is limited. Those in the millennium will be children of Christ and his bride. So the new covenant to them has a little bit different meaning, still has the same Savior, because he sent his Son because he so loved the whole world that he gave his first only begotten son, that any who should believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. So that, that promise of everlasting life ultimately is opened in order of resurrection to everyone, not just to the few. But brideship, or to be the wife, only to 144,000. So when you speak of the church... That's to whom you speak. When you read these scriptures, that is to whom you speak. Now, chapter 17, <clears throat> I went through somewhere in the Minor Prophets uh, series, so most of you probably have heard Ezekiel 17 expounded, but then there are some new listeners and some of us who uh, may not have heard those, and since it is here, I'm going to go through it again the pain of repeating, but then on the other hand, how many times have we read a lot of scriptures? And I've gone through this one myself many, many times, uh, reviewing it and thinking about it. So it doesn't hurt us to review a little bit, and we may have forgotten a lot of it anyway. It says, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. <laughs> Now, when we speak in riddles, it's hard to understand, right? People come up with a new riddle. See if you can get this one, they'll say. Because it is designed to hide the answer. 
what a riddle is. So this that is about to be read here was designed that it could not be easily understood. And not only is it a riddle, riddle, it is also a parable. Now, why did Christ speak in parables? The Protestants will tell you he spoke in parables and used agricultural symbolism and examples so that they might have the meaning made very clear and simple that everyone can understand. Now, what did he say? He said, I spoke in parables so that they would not understand, could not understand. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, and precept upon precept, as Isaiah 28 says. So, this is both a riddle and a parable. Something where the answer is hidden and written in such a way that they could not understand. And I submit to you that until we began to understand the prophecies about Israel and to see what has happened on the world scene begin to come to pass, it was very, very difficult to understand this. And even more importantly, until we saw the things that have happened to the church, in retrospect, we could not have understood Ezekiel 17. This is a chapter that could not have been understood, I believe, at all until about 20 years ago. And maybe not even then, because all of those developments had not come to fruition in the church. But now they have. So, when a riddle and a parable is given, it's something you're not going to understand until the conditions are just right, or God opens it up so that it can be understood. When I first understood this chapter, and I think I do understand it now, It was after I had read it many times, and even understanding what was happening in the church, it still wasn't clear to me what it was talking about. So I'd gone over it, I don't know how many times, and I finally just got down on my knees and said, Father, I don't understand this one. Help me see the answer. Picked it up and read it again. All of a sudden, it was just like, boom, there it was. It just opened right up, and everything fit. Not just a little piece here and there, but everything suddenly fit. Uh, To me, it is an amazing story when we get into it. Let's apply it essentially to the church. Uh, Perhaps there is an application to physical Israel as well, but the Bible, remember, was written to the church. Herbert Armstrong told us that, and even he didn't realize how much that was true. And this was written, first of all, I believe, about him. So speak to Israel, and we are the Israel of God, as Galatians says, and certainly Zion and Jerusalem, as Hebrews 12 says. So he's speaking, first of all, to the church. And say, thus says the eternal God. So here's a story that's coming from God. That's the origin. A great eagle with great wings, long wings, full of feathers, which had different colors, came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, what is a great eagle with great wings? A great eagle symbolizes a great people or a great leader. And, in fact, the symbol of modern-day USA is the eagle. So, perhaps the symbol of a leader of modern-day spiritual Israel would also be typified as an eagle. 
That doesn't stretch my imagination at all. With a wide wing spread. Now remember, Worldwide Church of God became a worldwide work. We had members and people and broadcasts and booklets in many, many languages going around the world. So it was not a little bitty bird with short wings, like a hummingbird, even smaller, but it was a great eagle, worldwide in scope. And in fact, this was recognized at one point, and we went from Radio Church of God, which is how it started out, and realized this isn't just a radio work, but this is a worldwide church of God. So the name was changed from radio, which didn't fit anymore, because it had gone into TV and printed presses and in three colleges and around the world, ultimately. It was changed to worldwide church of God. Great long wings. Full of feathers. Many people. Remember, God called many, and there were many called. Now few are being chosen out of those that were called. Which had different colors. Uh, look at the spectrum of, of color in mankind that's worldwide covered. Uh, every color and shade and hue of human being that there is was included ultimately. Started out mainly in Israel with physical Israelites. And then God, as per Romans 9, 10, and 11, spread it to all the Gentile lands and invited them as well and grafted them in so that it is a worldwide work full of different colors. And it came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. So God chose Herbert Armstrong. There are a lot of cedars in Oregon where the work began for the end time church. And then when the campus was started in Pasadena, there were many cedars, huge trees, on the Pasadena campus, which Mr. Armstrong always would go around with visitors and say, these are cedars of Lebanon. I think the tie-in here is very interesting. He always made that point. He walked by the cedar trees with people. These are cedars of Lebanon. He always pointed out. I don't, anytime I was around him, he never failed to do that. So, Maybe those physical trees that were there had something to do with it. He took the highest branch of the cedar, and cedars also represent churches, or trees do, as seen in Zechariah 11, where it talks about three great trees falling, and then equates that to three ministries or ministers, perhaps just the men or perhaps their whole organizations, which I think would be the case, that will fall. So, he's speaking here, of something that is worldwide, but is also based on a large tree, the cedar. And a cedar is a sweet-smelling tree, too. A lot of people like to have cedar lined closets and cedar uh, old things to store clothes in. The word won't come to me. Cedar chests. Wow. That was difficult. But that's the way it is with Alzheimer's. Anyhow, so this is speaking of a church or a temple that I believe is worldwide, spoken of as an eagle and as a large tree. He cropped off the top of his young twigs. He took a very small part of the church then, of the young twigs from the top. Mr. Armstrong took basically the leadership of the church, where? Down to Los Angeles from Oregon. 
and carried it into a land of traffic. What is one of our biggest ports? Los Angeles. It's where much goods come in from Japan, from China, uh, from Asia. Very, very busy place. A lot of people coming and going through Los Angeles, as well as goods. So, he took it into a land of traffic, and that fits pretty well with Los Angeles and Southern California. He said it in a city of merchants. Well, same thing goes. More explanation of what was just said. He took also of the seed of the land. Seed would mean people, here in this analogy. Uh, took also the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful place. My margin says, put it in a field of seed. You, know, you, you prepare a field and then you plant the seed in it so that it might grow. So, it was a fruitful field. It was a place where growth would occur. And there was not much growth in Oregon. And whatever was started usually sort of quit because there was no ministry trained to take care of the local congregation. So Mr. Armstrong would have these uh, tent revival meetings and meet in different towns and people would be interested and baptized in some cases. And then when he would go back to Salem, or Eugene, uh, Salem I guess mainly, in Portland some, but when he would leave, then it would just fall apart and die. So he realized he needed a college to train men to be local pastors to help hold those churches together. That was part of his thinking. So when he went to Pasadena, the idea was to establish a college to train people so that as the work grew, there would be local pastors to take care of it. So he planted it in a fruitful field. He placed it by great waters. <clears throat> waters would be doctrine, symbolically in the Bible. So God gave an understanding of the basic scriptures of the Bible, the basic truth of God, Sabbath, holy days, true understanding about the Trinity, and on and on and on it goes of the basic doctrines we understand about who Israel is and uh, why you were born, what the purpose of God for mankind is, and all these basic things that we take for granted uh, had to be revealed, had to be written down. And most of that came out after they moved to Pasadena. Most of those old booklets like that, uh, when is the day of salvation and why were you born, and all of those booklets were written in 1952, 1953, and 4, and so on, once the college had been established a few years. So he took it to a fruitful place, and it indeed began to truly grow from that moment. Uh, expanded very rapidly. And by great waters, or good doctrine, I think you could say, we're to live by every word of God, Deuteronomy 8, 7 through 9, Matthew 4, 4, uh, says that. So, good doctrine straight from the Bible. He didn't understand everything, but he understood certainly the basics of salvation and man's purpose on earth. <clears throat> and set it as a willow tree. Where does a willow tree grow? A willow tree grows where there's good water. Good doctrine. It takes a lot of water to grow willow trees. <clears throat> we sing about going to the waters of Babylon 
and willows there, hung our harp on the willow tree. How could we sing the eternal songs in Babylon? <coughs> and it's hard to truly obey God and separate from everything evil and wrong when you're in the midst of Babylon. And we had difficulty doing it, didn't we? We still have difficulty doing it because we're still attached to some degree to Babylon and it's very difficult to turn loose. It's hard to live without some attachment to it. And yet there are other, there are some attachments that we need to be taking loose ourselves. He does tell us in Isaiah 52 that we are to break the bands or the bonds of Babylon, that we are to sit up and quit being walked on by the society and the culture around us. But it's difficult. All right, so it had good waters, good doctrine, and it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Now, did the church worldwide grow up into a huge tree that was hard to miss? Now, the Catholic church is a pretty big tree. Uh, the Muslim religion is a pretty big tree that everybody knows about. So is Buddhism, Hinduism, even Shintoism in Japan. Huge religions. Big trees. But God said that that which came under Herbert Armstrong would be a spreading vine of low stature, whose branches turned toward him. Now analyze Worldwide Church of God. It spread more as a vine around the world, not as a huge tree that everybody paid a lot of attention to. And where did it branches its branches turn. They turn more and more to Herbert Armstrong. More and more to Herbert Armstrong. Until it almost seems he became the key figure almost more than God. That's scary thought. Now he emphasized God, but the branches turned toward him a great deal. And the roots thereof were under him. So it spread out from him. He was the key and central figure that God used. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. That's what a vine does. It begins to leaf out, branch out. And certainly this ties in with Christ saying that he is the vine, we're the branches. But this is speaking of the church itself that was turned toward Herbert Armstrong, as a representative of God, I won't go all the way back to Isaiah 5, we've been there several times, but it talks about God's vineyard in Isaiah 5 and how uh, it would grow and it would produce fruit, but, but it was strange fruit. And God said, this isn't the fruit that I want or expected. So he talks about how he would remove the hedge, he would knock down the tower or the watch, because foxes came and ate the little grapes before they were ripe, and uh, helped destroy the, the crop. So God says, I'm going to knock down the watchtower. I'll take away the hedge or the fence around it. I'll let it be destroyed. And I think that that is a definite prophecy of the church in this end time. And uh, our hedge was removed. Herbert Armstrong died. And it began to fall apart. didn't produce fruit. And not only that, we had not produced the fruit that God wanted. Turns out we thought we were Philadelphians, and suddenly we appeared as Laodiceans. Wow, how did that happen? But there it was. I wanted to make one comment 
earlier, but I'll make it now, about the Church of Philadelphia, uh, which came up in the sermonette. There are those who say they have the key of David. I don't see in Revelation 3 that it says anybody but Christ has the key of David. It says this is what he who has that key says. It doesn't say it gives it to anybody. Isn't it Psalm 22 that says the government will be upon his shoulder? He is the one who has the key of David. He's the, in the line for the kingship of David. So if anybody claims they have the key of David, then they are saying, whether they realize it or not, that they are Christ. That's what they're literally saying, because they misunderstand and read something into that that is not there. doesn't say he gives it to anybody. It says he has it. Here is what he who has the key of David says to Philadelphia. There's one that says they have the key of David, and they even named their program the key of David. They say they're the only ones that have the key of David. Well, I think they're being very presumptuous in that. They haven't read very carefully. And say he gives it to anybody. Anyway, it was a spreading vine of low stature. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. So it had offices around the world, had congregations locally around the world, so it wasn't just the home office now, the branches and sprigs going all over the world. This, so far to me, this just fits the church so perfectly, and I think it is the answer to the riddle and the parable. So, it was of no great fame around the world. We tried to impress the world. We tried to go to the kings and the rulers, but, you know, they were just private meetings, and we never attained to the reputation of, let's say, Billy Graham or some of those people. I mean, everybody knew about Billy Graham, uh, and he was always with the presidents. Well, Herbert Armstrong had an interview with the president once or twice, I think, and went to other leaders of nations, but in most cases, we had to pay. I wasn't always told, but Sam Goto and Stan Rader were going ahead and paying for those interviews. And uh, so it wasn't a great cedar. I mean, anybody will see if you give them enough money. Harris Hilton will come to your party if you pay her $50,000. You know, people answer to money. I hope nobody here invites her. Nobody here has 50 grand. He won't come to your party. All right, then it changes the subject a little better, uh, a little differently here, or goes to a different phase. Verse 7. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. So an eagle is a leader. And who came on the scene after Herbert Armstrong died? Joseph Takash Sr. So he was another leader in charge of the church with great wings. The work was still big. Many feathers. Lots of people were still there, weren't they? And in fact, it may have even grown a little bit after he came in. I don't know. I don't remember now for sure. The greatest growth was under Herbert Armstrong. He sort of took over as caretaker at that point. I don't think it really grew that much more afterward. But those people were still there. Still covered with great wings. Still covered the earth. Still had lots of feathers. Lots of people. And behold, this vine 
So it shows that there's a change here. Did Ben Hur roots? <clears throat> this is an eaglet, but a different eagle too. See, Joe Koch came in from Chicago, and in time took over. Uh, behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him. So, most everybody accepted Joe Koch and began now, instead of bending their roots to Herbert Armstrong, here it was Joe Koch who was supposed to be the leader now and to be able to give a spiritual understanding, uh, fertilization, if you please, uh, of truth, so that we might grow. So, wherever the fertilizer is and the water is, you begin to bend your roots there. So the whole church began to bend their roots toward Joseph the Koch. <clears throat> and shot forth her branches toward him. We accepted him as the leader, essentially. That he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. So instead of looking to Herbert Armstrong now, we began to look to Joseph the Koch and look to him for doctrine. And along the furrows that had been planted for the strength we needed for growth. Now, it says it was planted in a good soil by great waters. Now, it had been planted in good soil, good doctrine, by Herbert Armstrong. Then this other leader took over, this other eagle, and we looked there, our roots started to go there, and it had been planted in good soil, but let's see what happens. And that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. We had hope and anticipation of that, didn't we? That the work would continue without Herbert Armstrong and Joseph DeCock Sr. would lead us on toward the kingdom of God and toward a greater work and so on and so forth. We projected that that would be the case. <clears throat> and that it would bear fruit and do well. Because it was, after all, God's church, wasn't it? Say you, thus says the eternal God. Here's something that comes from God then. This was the anticipation that it would grow and bear goodly fruit and would continue on. But God asked the question, shall it prosper? That it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. God asked this question. Is it going to continue to grow and do well and bear fruit and be the kind of vine God would want? Well, you know the history, so now let's read it. This is easy to interpret once you understand the flow and, and once you know the history. It all fits right in. <clears throat> Shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof, that it wither? God says, is that's what will happen instead. Have the roots been pulled up where the church of God that were there? Has the fruit been cut off? Has it withered? Yes, it has. It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring. Time of the year when you would think that it would be growing. Time of great fruit. But it will wither. Even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. How many people did it take to destroy Worldwide Church of God? Did it take a lot of people? Was it a very big group of church people that got together and confronted Joe Sr. 
or later Joe Jr. <laughs> and said, you're all wrong. you got to change this or it's all going to fall apart. We'll walk out. No. It was just a very few men who crept in at the top who introduced false doctrine and it all began to wither and die. People began to leave. Didn't take many at all. Verse 10, yes, behold, being planted, was there, shall it prosper, then planted, then planted by one great eagle, great eagle, taken over by another one. Shall it not utterly wither when the east wind touches it? If you go back to Jeremiah 18, 15 through 18, I'm going to run back and look at that one right quick. Jeremiah 18. Verse 15, because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity. Pride, vanity, ego, isn't that what we became? In Revelation 3 and Laodicea, thinking we were wonderful and all spiritual before God. And they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths. What were the old paths? True doctrine that had been revealed through Herbert Armstrong by God to the church. To walk in paths in a way not cast up, or not a road that had been prepared. God prepared a road for us to walk on. And Herbert, Arm I mean, uh, Joe DeCox took us off that road and way off out into the boonies. So we were not following the correct path. Um, to make their land desolate in a perpetual hissing, everyone that passes thereby shall be astonished and wag his head. Now what happened to Worldwide? I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. An east wind was a dry, hot wind that caused things to shrivel and die. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. How many scriptures have we read where God says he's turned his face from us as a church, as a people? And that when he's done... With what he's doing, he'll turn his face back to us. Well, let's keep reading, because this sounds pretty grim right here at the moment as we analyze what's happened in the church. But it gets better. So, the east wind touches it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Where did it start withering first? Right in Pasadena. Right where those men took over. And that withering effect went all around the world as the church began to fade and wither and dry up. <clears throat> Verse 11. Alright, in addition to this, moreover, the word of the eternal came to me saying, say now to the rebellious house, <clears throat> okay, as a result of what's happened, Ezekiel says, or God tells Ezekiel, say to the rebellious house, church was a rebellious house that went from God. And we also, as individuals, rebelled. We need to understand that. We rebelled by becoming spiritually proud rather than humble and meek and obedient and submissive to God. We became arrogant and proud, and we were connected to this world, which is a whoring after other nations and cultures rather than God's way. So, it affected the leadership, but it also affects us. Say to the rebellious house. Go back to Ezekiel 2, 3, and 12, which we read not too long ago. 
And it tells him to go to the rebellious house. That God would make his forehead like flint, even more hard-headed than the people, so that that could be preached. <clears throat> so this refers back to that. Say now to the rebellious house. Now, who is it referring to? Well, if this analogy is about the church, it has to be to you and to me. Know you not what these things mean? Do you grasp what God is talking about here? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem, and has taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. Mr. Armstrong realized that he had been led astray, and that the church had been led astray, that it was off the track, to use his words, and he often said, we've got to get it back on track. But he was old and he was feeble. And people like Goto and Raider and Takash had led him, to some degree, the way. He was focusing on things that didn't need to be focused on. Now, some of us were upset and frustrated by that. I remember being very, very frustrated that the broadcast went the direction that it went. I mean, you know, it's fine to have a few broadcasts about dolphins and platypuses and whales and trying to disprove Darwinism. But there comes a point after so many years and years and years of Bailey talking about bees and whales that the focus is wrong. I used to just get angry when I turned that program on. Shut it off. Tired of hearing about that. Ted Armstrong had tried to get me to stay at college after I graduated and write those articles for him. Write those programs for him. I don't know why he thought I was a researcher, but he, he assigned me to write about bees first. And that sat on my desk my whole senior year. And I never even touched it. Maybe God's hand was in that. I felt guilty about it every time I'd see it, which was daily. I kind of winced because I knew that was sitting on my desk and it was an assignment that he had given me. But for some reason, I just couldn't get into it. I'm thankful now I didn't. I might have stayed there and been in the mess. Anyway, that's a personal thing. <clears throat> Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem. What did Sotokos bring into the church? Doctrines of Babylon. Not only spiritual, but cultural things also began to be weakened. And we began to look just like the worldly churches, and just like the world. So, he came to Jerusalem, to the church, through the Tukashes and their ilk. And has taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. Many of the evangelists went that direction. Remember Zechariah 5? I think I tied that in with this when I went through it before, but maybe it would be good to go there briefly and summarize that, because it's written in somewhat the same way that Ezekiel 16 or 17 is. Uh, Zechariah 5. Now, Zechariah 5 is set in the context of the two witnesses in Zechariah 3 and 4, and rebuilding of the temple, and then in chapter 6, after chapter 5, which is a bit of an enigmatic chapter, 
it goes back to that same context about the two witnesses and building the church and the, the gathering coming and people coming to work in the church. Uh, chapter 5 is kind of an incept chapter, it appears to me, because chapter 4 ends with talking about the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth uh, in reference to Revelation 11. It says, Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a flying roll. Now that wasn't a breakfast roll, but a scroll, parchment. And he said to me, what do you see? And I answered, I said, I see a flying roll. Here's this scroll, or this written material, uh, written out, that was flying. The length thereof is twenty cubits, the breadth thereof ten cubits, same as the ark. Then said he to me, or or the uh, tabernacle, I think it was, Then said he to me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone that swears shall be cut off as on that side according to it. Well, what word of God, written on a scroll originally, tells us not to steal? The Ten Commandments. So this is speaking of the law of God here, and that it will be a witness against everyone on the face of the earth. I will bring it forth, says the Eternal of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, into the house of him that sweareth falsely by my name. Who were those who stole the truth? The Sakajas and their bunch. Who swore falsely by his name? We're going to find out a little later on in Ezekiel 17 that an agreement was made and hands were shaken. But there was someone who did not live up to the agreement. So he swore falsely that he would walk in the footsteps of Herbert Armstrong. Remember Joe DeCott saying that? I'll walk in his footsteps. And it shall remain in the midst of his house and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. The law of God will stand while that temple has fallen. The law of God is still there. It hasn't gone anywhere. Then the angel who talked with me went forth and said to me, Lift up now your eyes and see what is this that goes forth. You'll understand what this is all about. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goes forth. Now, an ephah represented a harvest and grain put in a basket. So it's talking about the harvest that God intended his church to uh, produce the fruits or the grain. He said, moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. So it was a great wingle, eagle, with wide wings, and went all the way around the earth. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Now, what is lead? It's not a very valuable thing, is it? But it's a very heavy thing. A talent of lead was lifted up. And this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephah. So here, a woman represents in Scripture a church. So here's a woman sitting in the middle of the harvest of God's word and God's law. Well, what's that? The only people I know of on the earth that are truly commandment keepers of the true church of God. So here <clears throat> is a woman sitting in the middle of the harvest. And he said, this is wickedness. Whatever sitting in the middle of the harvest of God was wicked. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he caused cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. 
So here's this big chunk of lead that is lifted up, and here's this church sitting in the middle of the harvest, and the lead is smashed into the mouth of the woman. The church had been providing a great deal of radio, television, printed word around the world, but wickedness had come in and taken over, and God wanted it shushed. Now, that work is basically down to nearly nothing today. Its mouth has been shut. Then lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women, and the wind was in their wings. For, he, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up as an unclean bird. Uh, the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then said I to the angel to talk with me, Where do these bear the ephah? And he said to me, To build a house in the land of Shinar. Well, who were the two birds that took the church back to Babylon? Joe Sr., Joe Jr. Said to me, Build a house in the land of Shinar. That's Babylon. And it shall be established and set there, set there upon her own base. The worldwide church of God has gone back into the world, back into Babylon, by an unclean bird. And it's two women, really, still what's left of worldwide church of God, but it's become a different woman, become a Protestant woman. Not like it was at all. So I think that ties in very clearly with Ezekiel 17. Let's go on and read that in Ezekiel 17 and see. King of Babylon has come to Jerusalem and has taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. Worldwide is beginning to look more and more like the world. And Herbert Armstrong was drifting that way because of the influence of people around him. He fought it. He didn't like it. But he kind of went that way. I don't think he lost his opportunity of salvation or anything of the kind. But God said it would go that way, and it did. Verse 13, And he has taken of the king's seed, that's God's people, and has made a covenant with him, and has taken an oath of him. He has also taken the mighty of the land. So, Jonah Cox is making a deal with Herbert Armstrong to be the successor to Mr. Armstrong. Mr. Armstrong wrestled with that for years. Who will be my successor? I've heard him speculate in public. I've heard him speculate in private with me uh, in a session I had with him in his office where he said, Bob Meredith can't do it. Hal Fortune can't do it. David Hedian can't do it. He named a bunch of the evangelists. I don't remember who all. And Joe DeCoss was sitting there and he said, Joe DeCoss can't do it. He was really frustrated. And he would designate one man and say, well, maybe that's the man. And then the guy would make some stupid mistake or his weaknesses would show and he'd say, well, that can't be him. So then he'd move on and he kept trying to decide who would, he would have for his successor. Turns out that Joe DeCotch managed to work his way in and he took an oath of him that he would follow in his footsteps and do the same things that he had done. It was Man, the body was barely warm. 
when it began to change makeup, when it began to change healing, I guess healing was actually first, and then makeup right after that. And from there, it just went right on downhill very rapidly, didn't it? Took an oath. He also took the mighty of the land. A lot of evangelists stayed with that. Couldn't believe some of the men who left the truth to go right back into Protestantism. That the kingdom might be base. No good. Worthless. Base. That it might not lift itself up. It had to be carried to Babylon by Stark. That, but that by keeping of his covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against him and sending his ambassadors into Egypt. So Jodah Koch made a deal with Mr. Armstrong and immediately went back to the world, to false religion. Even before Mr. Armstrong died, way back in the 70s, they had begun to send the ministry to Fuller's Seminary and other Protestant places to get their uh, master's degrees, their PhDs, and so on. I was pastoring churches in Southern California at that time, and they wanted me to go there. And I refused. Why should I go to the Protestants to get a master's or a PhD? And in fact, when they began to put pressure on, I just went in and requested a transfer. I want out of here. Send me somewhere out in the boonies. Very shortly thereafter, I was in Idaho and Montana. Who'd ever heard of that? Mr. Armstrong asked me one time, well, where are you now? I said, Idaho. He kind of got a blank look. said, that's a nice place. <laughs> I said, I thought, yeah, it sure is. <laughs> I don't have all this politics and all this uh, stuff that's going on in Pasadena. I don't think he'd probably been to Idaho since he'd gone from Chicago via Borough Trail almost to Oregon. So going through Idaho to him was an actual adventure because he was in a, what was it, a Model A or a Model T and had a flat about every, I don't know, I remember the story in the uh, autobiography, but they had flats all along the way and barely got the cars to run. You know, it looked like the grapes of wrath going across there. That probably was his mindset as to what Idaho looked like. Anyway, they began sending their ambassadors of the ministry back to the world to get educated. And that was the beginning of the downfall of a lot of guys that went the wrong way and came to have wrong understanding. So, but that's where the administration, I think, if anyone had ever gone to Mr. Armstrong and said, Mr. Armstrong, they're sending these men to all these Protestant colleges to learn Protestantism so they can get masters and PhDs to make us look important to the world because the big deal then was uh, uh, <coughs> what, what was the word? Accreditation by the world. And I thought at the time, why do we need the world to accredit us? We're here to train a ministry and a people to go out and administer the churches of God. Why do we need the world to accredit us to do that? I want the accreditation of God, not of men. And if I go to Fuller's, they're going to teach me Trinity, you know, Sunday keeping, Christmas and Easter. Why do I need that? That was part of my rebellion. Why I asked to get out of there. Because it was splitting into political factions. 
and some of the leaders there were trying to get the different ministers on their side. I saw that and said, I want out of here. <clears throat> didn't make me righteous. I didn't want to get into the politics and the fighting. The reason I asked to get out of there, I wanted a little peace and found some. So it was the base kingdom turned into that, that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. So it was still there, but it was base. But he rebelled against him and sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and much people. You know, if you're going to grow, you want lots of people, lots of horses. Uh, speaking in a military term here, horses meant ability to fight war. Uh, to go out and be a big deal, in other words. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that does such things? God begins to show some judgment here. Or shall he break the covenant? And be delivered? Can you go in and make a deal with God's man whom he had placed there to build a church? Can you make a deal with him and then renege on your word and prosper? Is this in the cards? Is that what you're holding in your hand? As I live, says the eternal God, surely in the place where his king dwells that made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon he shall die. Herbert Armstrong died in the midst of Babylon, the city of traffic, one of the most sinful cities on earth. Maybe the city of angels by name, Los Angeles. But it's the city of fallen angels, not God's angels. Right in the midst of Babylon. Herbert Armstrong died there. Joe Koch died there also. The story is correct right down to the detail. Neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many people. New King James makes that a little clearer, but basically it's saying that it'll be ineffective. That they'll go to the world... And they'll think they're going to become a great big deal. Now, didn't Joe have great dreams of becoming an evangelical and, and having great influence in the world? But what did he do? It shrank instead. It wasn't effective at all. So, going to the world, to Egypt, didn't help a bit. Uh, the evangelical movements that are going on now have local congregations in Houston and Dallas and Denver and various places where thousands show up. 10,000 people at a church service. Is that what's happening in Worldwide? It's evangelical too. didn't happen that way. So going to the world and thinking you're going to prosper and do well in it doesn't work. And in reality, it cut off many people instead of adding them. Now, Job Sr. died in Babylon. And I think that the story picking up here is from his son on. Remember, Zechariah 5 talks about two and an unclean bird and setting it in Babylon. All right, verse 18. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant, the agreement, he despised everything he had agreed to by, with Herbert Armstrong, he and his son, Junior, when, lo, he had given his hand. He said, this is my hand. This is my word. When you make an agreement and shake hands on it, it's supposed to be 
that way. When you sign a check, you're saying, I'm giving my word. This is good. It represents you and everything you are. If you bounce a check, you are worth the same amount as that worthless check. That's what this is saying. Don't set your hand to it unless it's true. He broke the covenant when he had given his hand and has done all these things, he shall not escape. God says it's just not going to work out. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, as I live, I'll swear by my eternal life, surely my oath that he has despised and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his head. The covenant of truth, the covenant of the law and the word of God would come back to bite them. And it's going to. Hasn't gone full circle yet, but it's about to. As I'll go into the tribulation. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon. Do you want to go to Babylon? I'll take you there. And I will plead with him there for his trespass, that he has trespassed against me. I'll say, you want to go to Babylon? Okay, here it is. Is that what you really want? There are people who did plead with Joe Jr. But don't, don't take us that direction. He despised that. He's going to go that way regardless. Verse 21, And all his fugitives with all his bands shall fall by the sword. Does Ezekiel 5 talk about famine, pestilence, disease, the sword? coming spiritually upon God's people. It certainly has. And they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds. True believers now are scattered all over the place. There is no only Philadelphia Church of God anywhere. Mark God's words, not mine. God's true people are scattered throughout. No one can claim to be the true church today. The true people are scattered everywhere. So one organization cannot say, we are it. Can we right here? No, we cannot. I think we are people who are repenting, who are changing, who are growing, who are working at breaking the bands of Babylon, but we're not the only ones. There are people scattered through all the organizations and people who are home all alone who are trying to remain faithful to God. They're going to be gathered someday. But until they're gathered, they're just individuals here and there. God knows who they are. You and I don't. So nobody can claim that. Anyway, they'll be scattered to all the winds. Isn't that what has happened to the church? And you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. God said it back here. He said it in many prophecies. And now it has happened. We can see the results. Now, what is God going to do? Here's where it turns around and gets to be better reading. Thus says the eternal God. Now, I want you to, to grasp here, I want to make this point and remind us <laughs> that if this really bad stuff we've been reading about happened, and it has, God swore by his eternity that this bad stuff would come. 
Okay? It has. Now, he's going to swear by his eternity that good stuff will come. Now, isn't that just as valid? I believe so. Therefore, we need to march forth in faith and belief that just as surely as bad has happened to the church, good will begin to come. So if you believe one, you need to have faith to believe in the other. See? The just shall live by faith. Not by sight, but by faith. <clears throat> we haven't seen it turn around yet. We've, we've seen, we've observed, we've experienced everything we've read up to this point, haven't we? In detail. All right. Thus says the Lord God, verse 22. I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. God is going to look at his church and he's going to pick out someone to be a leader. And I will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one. So God, you know, the, the new growth appears a lot of times at the top of the tree where the young twigs keep growing and growing and producing at the top. So God is going to take some young twigs, not great cedars themselves, not great leaders, but tender branches off the tree, and will set it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So God is going to take something very small, not a great big tree, but out of that big tree, which was really more like a vine, should have been a cedar, but it turned out to be more of a vine. God is going to say, I'm going to take of the cedar, or that which should have been that, and I'm going to take a little bit off the top, some tender twigs, young, small, not great. So, whatever is going to happen next is going to start very small. I think we can extrapolate that from this. Top of his young twigs, a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So, it is going to be planted, young and tender and small as it is, in a place that will be, ultimately, imminent, <laughs> like a mountain. Um, in the mountain of the height of Israel will I plant it. So, it's going to be in the midst of Israel. And I think since this analogy is about the church, it's going to be in the middle of the church. Not the world, not from somewhere else. It'll be from those converted under Herbert Armstrong who are part of the new covenant of marriage agreement with God as a result of the understanding that he had and the calling that God gave us individually. So it's going to happen as a part of the government or mountain of the church of God. It'll be planted there, somewhere in the church. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. No more a spreading vine that did not bring forth the fruit that God wanted. Therefore, he had to tear it down, as Isaiah 5 says, or spew it out of his mouth, out of his mouth as Revelation 3 says. <laughs> Depends on which scripture and which analogy you're reading at the moment. But they all amount to the same. But what he is going to produce out of the dregs and the pieces and the parts that are left of worldwide is going to become a goodly cedar. 
Now, look at Haggai, where it says, come and bring wood from the forest, from mountains, and put it together and create a temple of God here at the end time. And it says that there will be old men still available who have seen worldwide at its strongest spiritually, and they will be able to compare it with the latter temple and see that the latter temple is far stronger and spiritually more mature in what it ought to be than what originally was. Now, it only makes sense that it would be that way if God spews the whole church out and then he begins to pick pieces here and there and clean them up and make them usable and brings them together that they are going to produce something that is better than that which came before, which was spewed out. Because this is only going to be a 10% faithful remnant that is brought together. These will be people who have repented and overcome and grown, so that they are themselves spiritually more mature than we ever were in worldwide. Anyone who is trying to recreate worldwide does not comprehend whatsoever what God is seeking to do. Recreating worldwide only recreates something that God spewed out of his mouth. So if you're restoring worldwide, or going back to Herbert Armstrong, I appreciate in one sense what that means, that is, retain good doctrine instead of going to the Babylonian doctrines. But it also shows a lack of discernment and understanding of Scripture, and that God says, I spewed that out because you people aren't what you should have been. You and I have a personal responsibility, each and every one of us, to become a lot more spiritually aware, spiritually mature, spiritually under control than we ever were in Worldwide Church of God. To be a truly faithful remnant of the church and to grow and the grace and the knowledge of our Lord. <clears throat> Not sit still and just restore that which is gone, but to go forward to learn more and to be what God wants us to be. Not a spreading vine, but a goodly cedar. And to bear true spiritual fruit, not grapes that God looks at and says, wait a minute, that one's a little sour. When I pick up a grape, I want it to taste good and sweet and ripe. And when I bite into one that makes my teeth go on edge and is sour, it's ugh. God's that way with his fruit. He wants it sweet and ripe. He wants it right. And he says, this one will bear that kind of fruit and be a goodly tree. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. Now, don't the scriptures show in many different places through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on, minor prophets, that God is going to gather people from the four corners of the earth He's going to gather his remnant from every place. Israelite, Gentile, doesn't matter. Wherever his faithful ones are scattered, he's going to bring that remnant together. So it'll be a fowl of every kind of wing. And the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So they're all going to physically come together, not just spiritually, and they're all going to dwell under this goodly cedar that produces good fruits. And all the trees of the field shall know 
But I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree. And we can go to, I think it's Isaiah 41, where it talks, yeah, verses 18 through 20, about planting seven trees in the wilderness. You go back to Isaiah 4, and it talks about seven women or churches taking hold of one man. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3 talks about seven churches. So all those attitudes are in the church today. And people from all of those attitudes and backgrounds and problems will come together under this one tree that God is going to build. All the trees of the field, all seven, <clears throat> shall know that I, the eternal, have brought down the high tree that would seem big and important to us and worldwide. Now, we didn't look upon it as a spreading vine, did we? We looked upon it as a great church of God, the work of God. So, God said it should have been a cedar, big tree, but it turned out to be a spreading vine. Yeah, it went all over the world, but it never became much. And we read in Ezekiel a little earlier about uh, how the, well, where is it, the vine tree? Back in chapter 15 or so? Yeah, chapter 15 talks about a vine tree. Not a cedar tree, but so the vines are kind of worthless when it comes to building houses or doing anything but eating fruit off of them. But God says that vine is going to become a cedar that he plants, a true tree. All the trees of the field shall know that I have eternally brought down the high tree, that which we thought was big and important, have exalted the low tree, that which wasn't very big, just planted with twigs, have dried up the green tree, that which seemed to be going somewhere and doing something, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So God is going to take Basically, dead sticks, if you will, spiritually speaking, that would be us if we're the ones whom he uses. I speak of us being a part of the remnant, not the remnant. If we're among those he uses, maybe is a better way of putting that. We weren't too lively, were we? We weren't really on fire spiritually, were we? We sort of had drifted with the church gone along with things. And in God's estimation, basically we're dead twigs. So he's going to take that which appeared to be dead and bring it to life. I, the eternal, have spoken and have done it. Now you can tie in dozens, hundreds of scriptures in Isaiah, the minor prophets, various other places, the Psalms, to show how God is going to bless the remnant church. The whole book of Haggai, uh, Zechariah, where he's going to bless the leadership. And that the temple of God will be built and it will outshine in spiritual glory everything that has come before. And by comparison, worldwide church of God, that spreading vine will appear to be nothing. Because God is going to use a faithful remnant of that to produce something that gives truly goodly fruit. Now to me, this is good news. It shows what God is about to do. And the good news to us is that we know this. We understand this now. And we can be a part of that. And it should encourage us and strengthen us to grow and realize that having been given this opportunity, God would not have given it to us if he didn't think we could accomplish it. But if we go to him in prayer, if we go to him in obedience, we can be a part of this. But God has spoken. 
given his word, it is going to happen. And I hope and pray that each and every one of us can be a part of it. We will have a memorial service for Andy Benedetto at 4 o'clock following the potluck. So you might want to stick around for that or you need to go home come back at 4. And uh, we'll have that as well as something else that I have in mind. So uh, see you at 4.